If you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, if you're joining us, uh, visiting with us, or uh, rejoining with us, we are in a sermon series on this high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, and we're taking this winter season into the spring to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through these amazing words of our Lord. So John chapter 17, our passage, our verses of study are verses 4 through 5, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and in this specific section, Jesus is praying for himself before the Father. This is God's holy word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Pray with me. Father, again, in your amazing love and kindness, you have allowed us to see this prayer of our Lord, to read it, to understand it, to learn from it, to grow from it. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to be drawn more and more into your heart, conformed more and more to the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. George Washington Carver was a famous Alabamian, an agricultural scientist in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century. He's famously known as the Peanut Man. Now, falsely, he is sometimes credited with being the creator of peanut butter, but that honor belongs to John Harvey Kellogg, who created the Kellogg cereal. So we get to give him credit for that feast we feed our children every day. (laughs) Mr. Carver did, however, go on to become one of uh, the greatest inventors of American history. He came up with over 300 uses for the peanut. Could you... 300 uses for the peanut. He used peanut material to make things like chili sauce, shampoo, don't know about that one, uh, shaving cream, glue, Worcestershire sauce, punches, cooking oils, salad oil, paper, cosmetics, soaps, wood stains, just to name a few. Now, not all of his inventions kind of made it into American society, but he came up with over 300 uses for the peanut. Now, if I were to ask you, hey, could you name uh, uh, you know, several everyday uses that we use for the peanut? Could you come up with 300? <laughs> I sure couldn't. Um, I could come up with a few, but how did Mr. Carver do that? How in the world did he manage to invent or come up with so many uses for something as small as a peanut? Well, for one, he was endowed by God, his creator, with a brilliant scientific mind. Carver was a follower of the Lord Jesus, I discovered. 
And with his mind and his holy curiosity, he made it his life's work to study the power of the peanut and the many wonderful health benefits it contained. The point is this, Carver dedicated his life to studying and knowing and understanding the peanut and its many uses and applications. He was not satisfied that it was simply a delicious treat that we smashed between two pieces of bread. <laughs> he saw the peanut as a marvel of God's creation that would take a lifetime for him to understand, to even comprehend the marvel of the peanut created by God. Now, what I'd like you to take away from this illustration of Carver's diligence and determination to understand the power and the amazing creation that the peanut was, coming up with over 300 different uses. Now apply that to John chapter 17. You and I could spend a lifetime of understanding and applying and studying the beauty and the majesty of this prayer and only scratch the surface of all that is contained here. That's why we're going verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through this wonderful prayer. Because Holy Scripture and this magnificent prayer has amazing meaning and application and depth for us that we will never be able to fully comprehend how much God has given to us in His Word. We will never be able to fully comprehend the beauty and the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God and His Word. But nevertheless, nevertheless, let us set our gaze on this text this morning and set out with determination, much like Mr. Carver and the peanut, to understand the heights and the depths of this wonderful prayer of Jesus. I really want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not only spend the time this morning with me meditating and studying God's Word here from John chapter 17, but go home and, and meditate on these words. Pray through them, because there is no doubt probably over, well over 300 applications and truths that we can glean from this text. We'll just try to do a few of those this morning. Just to remind you where we are in this prayer, it's a prayer that Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father just before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion. He prayed these words. He prayed these words in the presence of his disciples. Think about that for a minute. Why did he do that? It was for their benefit, for our benefit. This prayer has three different sections, and again, we're looking at the first one, and the verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Next week, we'll begin to look at the next section, verses 6 through 19, which has to do with Jesus praying for his disciples who were with him in ministry while he was on this earth. And then the last part of the prayer, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all those who would be a part of his church in the future. Jesus prays for us. And so this final portion, though, in verses 4 through 5, where Jesus is praying for himself, he does two things in verses 4 and 5. He makes a statement about his glory and a request for his glory. He asks that because he will soon glorify the Father on the cross, that's his statement, that he would now be glorified with his pre-incarnate glory. That's his request. 
So we're back to this theme of glory or glorify again. And Christ here mentions in this text his glory that he had on earth and the glory that he had before the world even existed, he says in verse 5. So I want us to look at those two things this morning. The first being Christ's glory on earth and the second being Christ's pre-incarnate glory. That's the glory that he had before he was born into the world. The first Christ's glory on earth he mentions in verse 4. Again, we've already noted in verse 1 a few weeks ago that the glory that the Son requests that the Father would glorify Him through and with is His work on the cross. The glory that would be achieved through His life and through His death and sacrifice on the cross. But now Jesus specifically recounts, He says that He has glorified the Father on earth having accomplished the work that the Father had given to him. So what is this work that he is referring to here in verse 4? What's the work that the Father had given to him? Well, J.C. Ryle is very helpful here, and he offers three meanings on what Jesus is referring to here when he mentions the work that he accomplished on earth. The first is that Christ glorified the Father by keeping the law perfectly so that Satan could find no defect or blemish in him. Jesus kept the law perfectly. That was his work. Secondly, Christ glorified the Father by witnessing faithfully to the truth in opposition to the sins and false teaching of the Jews. He never wavered in proclaiming the truth of God. And thirdly, Christ glorified the Father by showing the mind and heart of God towards man in a way that was never known before. Think about that. Before Christ came, man had not been able to understand the mind and heart of God before there was the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed while he was on earth. So during Jesus Christ's entire earthly ministry, from his incarnation to his ascension, he glorified the Father by perfect, unvarying holiness. And so when Christ speaks of, the, of finishing the work that he came to do, he, he's speaking of the, of the completed work of redemption. And he did this by what the theologians call his active and passive obedience while he was on this earth. Again, the active obedience of Christ refers to the fact that he kept the law perfectly. He kept all of God's rules, all of God's commandments perfectly. And the purpose of the law for us is to help us glorify God by keeping his commands. The law is not just a bunch of rules and regulations. It is the way it shows us how to glorify God by the way we live our lives. It is how we live out God's revealed will. We have failed to keep the law perfectly. You and I fail every day. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Christ came in order that he might represent us so that he could keep the law perfectly as our great high priest. And then he would redeem us by his perfect obedience to the law of God. But then there's his passive obedience. And this refers to Christ's death on the cross. 
We are saved not only by his life, but by his death. Jesus surrendered his life. He stood in our place. He was the sacrifice of atonement for us. And so God's heart here was shown to us in the most wonderful way that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he sacrificed himself for us and for sin. And in doing so, what Jesus did is he guaranteed the covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son. In the covenant of redemption, before the world was made, the sovereign eternal agreement between God the Father, who was the representative of the Holy Trinity, and God the Son, who was the, would be the representative of God's people, Christ carried out the obligations of the covenant given to him by God the Father, who in turn promises the Son all that is needed for this redemptive work. And it will be through his life and death and resurrection that the work of redemption would be accomplished. And that is why Jesus cried out on the cross, It is finished. The work is done. It is accomplished. By making this pronouncement that he glorified God perfectly on earth, Jesus Christ is doing what Adam failed to do. He's fulfilling the covenant of works. He is is completing the work of God perfectly by keeping the commandments. He obeyed God perfectly. So the point is this. Christ came to accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do, and it was for our good. He did it for us. Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. If there was time this morning, it would be wonderful to walk through Romans 5 with you to see in great detail how Christ is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He did that for us. He glorified the Father with the work he was given to do on earth. But secondly, this is in verse 5, Christ glorified the Father. He asked for glory with the Father before the world existed. Christ here speaks of his pre-incarnate glory. He prays that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had before the world existed, before time began, before anything was made. He asked for his glory to be restored to that point. Now just think about that for a moment. And this is where it's good to have your Bibles open. And really looking at what Jesus is saying here and thinking about this statement. You see what he says there? Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this world is all I've ever known. So to think about something that existed before this world and that Jesus had a glory then as he does now, hopefully when you begin to think about this a little bit, you have that feeling as the kids say, your mind being blown, (laughs) right? This is the starting point that we must start with when it comes to 
understanding who Jesus is. Try to consider and contemplate and get your mind around the idea that before Jesus came to earth, he was with God. He was God. He was with God the Father, God the Spirit for all eternity. Blessed Trinity. The idea is this, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, His existence did not start as a babe in Bethlehem. That was not the beginning of His life. The Scriptures say Jesus came into the world. He was not simply born into the world. He came from another world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says He came out of the eternal everlasting glory of the Godhead. And just the the thought of what Jesus is saying here, it transcends our understanding, doesn't it? It's very difficult for us to, to grasp with our finite minds. But yet this is what Jesus teaches, and this is the way we must start to think of Him and to understand His glory. John describes the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus that was before he became a man in John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. But in order for Christ, God the Son, to become a man, something had to happen. Because if he were to come down... And his blazing white-hot glory upon the earth, all would be destroyed, right? Because all have sinned, and he is perfect, and he is holy. He had to condescend to earth. And in doing so, the scriptures say that he laid aside his eternal glory, in which he had with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus laid aside his eternal glory when he was born into this world. Now, we need to be very careful here because this is where many heresies have creeped into the church. And a bad theology of Jesus leads to a bad theology of life, right? So what we need to understand here, I am not saying that Jesus laid aside his deity, Because he did not. He was and always will be fully God. What he did lay aside was the glory of his deity. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, He did not cease to be God, but he ceased to manifest the glory of God. So again, Jesus did not lay aside his deity. He He laid aside the glory of his deity. This heavenly glory that he had, it was co-equal with the undivided trinity. He was holy, 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 white, hot, perfect, and glorious. But maybe the best way for us to understand this, and Jesus graciously gives us an illustration of to begin to comprehend what this looks like, was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hopefully you remember that story in Matthew chapter 17. If you recall, Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was transfigured. He was, 
he was changed for a moment in a way that he appeared in a radiance that had surpassed anything they had ever known, seen, or heard of when it came to Christ Jesus. Matthew recalls in verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So in that moment, at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus' deity. And the only way that they could describe it, the only words that, that could begin and to attempt to describe this glory, they said it was so radiant, so glorious, that it was like the blazing, white-hot glory of the sun. Think about that. That is the way he appeared to them for a moment. And then you remember the words from the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And now that Jesus' work would soon be completed, here in these verses, in this prayer, he asks to be restored to this heavenly glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Christ did not lose his eternal glory, but it was veiled or suspended for a moment, for a time during his earthly ministry. And the glory that he now seeks is that heavenly glory that he will receive once again as now he appears in heaven as the God-man. Think about that. Jesus is now in the heavenly throne room as a man, the God-man, in all of his glory. And just to think that when we see him when his, in all his glory, he will still have the nail-scarred hands and feet as emblems of his love. But until then, Charles Wesley's Christmas hymn says it well, he's veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hell, the incarnate deity. And again, in that song, he says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Now, all that we've been discussing and, and, and reading and understanding about in these verses, what Jesus prays, what he, what he allows us to understand and to to see about the, the Holy Trinity, this is very theological and very deep. And I know it's early, <laughs> but it only scratches the surface of this grand Christology that we find in Scripture. And these types of things that we learn about our Savior, I think the only response we can have is what Paul had at the end of Romans chapter 11. He said, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment and how inscrutable his ways, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul breaks out into praise. He bursts forth in praise when he thinks about who Jesus is and all that he has done. But in response to thinking about all these things of Christ. Let's remember that this is a prayer. This is a prayer. He prays for our benefit that he prays before his heavenly father. 
And I don't want you to leave this morning thinking that you've simply gained more knowledge about Christ. I hope that we leave this morning and we want to worship Him more. Worship Him. He is worthy of all praise and all glory and all understanding that He has glorified the Father on earth by the crucifixion and the resurrection so that we may know Him. And He did this, God did this for us. For you. If you know and love Jesus, he did all this for you. He laid aside his eternal glory for you. He became a man for you. He fulfilled the law perfectly for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He ascended into heaven and always lives to intercede before the Father for you. And he will come again for you. This is what this table preaches to us this morning. It proclaims to us that Christ will come again. And brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with these things, if you're struggling with a heart grasped by the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done, if you're struggling to behold the glory of Christ, then ask Jesus to give you his spirit so that your eyes and your mind and your hearts would be open to these glorious truths. God has sent his spirit into our hearts to make these things real to us ask him for help and he will he has promised to give it let's pray oh lord we thank you so much for this amazing gospel for these amazing truths for the glory of of the person and work of the lord jesus christ that he came to earth to accomplish the work that you gave him to do and that you have even now glorified him in your presence with the glory that he had before the world existed. We, we thank you that he always lives to intercede for us. We thank you that his ministry is always good and perfect for us. And we thank you that he, that you have loved us so much that you sent your one and only son into the world for us. Father, please now prepare our hearts for these means of grace that we have before us. Uh, Lord, please nourish us. With them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.